Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. Im Denton. Hello, you're listening to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy here in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Edison, uh, and sorry, are we still doing the thing where we're pretending like we don't know where Im is and they've disappeared off the face of the earth? Okay. I mean, like, even though anyone who knows him personally or follows him on Twitter or anyone who has listened to this podcast around the start of the, uh, the year is going to have a good idea of exactly where him is, we, we're still... Okay, no, 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 that, that, that's fine. If that's the decision, I'll go with it. I just, I mean, are we... Yeah, no, 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 okay, okay. <clears throat> Dr. M. Dentith, though, who knows where they might be after disappearing mysteriously following a walk in North Head, we've just still been receiving these sporadic communications... Uh, which all seem to involve um, interviews with with uh, academic colleagues. Um, so this week is more of the same M's left for me, an interview with Martin Orr and Jenna Husting, both of Boise, Idaho, uh, who we've heard from in this podcast before. There's, there's talk, talk of a hotel room, talk of quarantine, suspect, uh, makes one suspect that M's sort of sequestered somewhere, hiding out from who knows what. Quarantine's an interesting word to hear in these COVID-ravaged times, but I don't know, maybe we're looking too much into things by trying to to, to dig too much meaning, uh, meaning out of out of these stray comments. Maybe we should just uh, listen into this interview and um, see what see what we can learn. It's the 30th of June, and I'm talking with Jenna Husting and Martin Orr, sociologists both from Boise State University, and two people we haven't heard from jointly since the end of 2017, when I spent time in their delightful company in Boise, Idaho. Hello, Jenna and Marty. Hello, hello. Hello, Em. So, let's ask the really obvious question. How has the pandemic affected you personally? Marty. I'm I'm one of those annoying people that that um, is not prevented you know I, I, yeah, I, yeah. you know the, it's not like i go to the movies all the time at this point so but it's mostly it's just mostly about not not seeing people we've had uh, we have a family member in long-term care and and uh that's been totally locked wow. down and um so all of that uh the general frustration of uh the, the response to the whole thing um one one would have hoped for if if there were ever a time where people might kind of come together, this would have been it, but but not so much. Um, so that 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 frustration carries into a lot of stuff, I think, for for many people. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, we're we're muddling through. I'm more or less fully functional. Um, yeah, so I've had it better than most people. So you've basically been able to use the pandemic to justify a little bit of introversion. Yeah, right. <laughs> it does make it. Yeah, um, you know, I was, I, I'm well prepared for for uh, for some of that. So yeah, having having books around and and Netflix. Yes, we do. We do live in a wonderful age of streaming now, in that even I, who's stuck in a hotel room for the last eleven days have been able to keep myself occupied with an awful lot of media. Or I think even going back 10 years ago, bringing enough books to spend three weeks in quarantine would have been a substantial part of my luggage only a decade ago. Yes. Yeah. So, Jenna, how, is the, how, how are you coping with the pandemic? Um, it's a really good question. When, uh, uh, I, the question is so big that it's really hard to wrap one's answers around, I think, in some ways. But um, how has it affected me and how am I coping are probably two questions. One of the interesting things about uh, when I think back to uh, the beginning of the pandemic, when, when we were all not sure what was going on from that moment, from right? March, a year and a half ago, I guess. It feels like I've been, I've been really sort of, it's, it's been a weird way in which uh, like academic concerns about conspiracy theorizing have melded with personal experience because, um, you know, I don't know anyone who hasn't 
been put in the position of trying to figure out what's true and false week to week, right? Now it's not so dramatic. Um, but what's what we robustly know or think we know and how we think we know it, right? And and what is most likely fact, distinguishing that from what might not be probably isn't and what the levels of risk are in terms of medical knowledge, but also political, right, action um, in the United States, for example, and sort of with implications for one's own safety, it seems like all of that has become really personal in a weird way. Um, and so thinking back through that and thinking back to the first couple of months of, of trying to figure out what was going on um, in all those ways has really made me think twice about mm, facile assumptions about what we know to be true and how we know it to be true, what I guess we would call epistemology. Yes, I like how you've You've moved our discussion on here into the second question I was going to ask, which is, how has the pandemic been affecting our work? Yeah, I guess same answer. Yeah. Because, I mean, what's quite interesting, I think, from our perspective is, of course, we come from two very different countries that have dealt with the pandemic in very different ways. And this has been both dealing with it politically and also dealing with it in a kind of social epistemic way, in that New Zealand's kind of been world-class with respect to very effective science communication about why we're doing things at particular points in time during the pandemic, what the science behind these claims are, why we should act in particular ways, why views about masks have changed over time. And it seems that there hasn't been an equivalent effective science communication, let alone good political governance from the US during the course of the pandemic, at least during the Trump regime. Maybe things are different under Biden. It's hard. Marty, what do you think? I'm I'm finding it hard to to sort of distinguish because this, with a vaccine in particular, things started to get clear and snap into place the Biden presidency happened at the same time. And it's hard for me to know what the causal relationship was. Um, Although we did even, you know, the CDC was having such difficulty, I think, under, under Trump, um, that a lot of what they wanted to say was suppressed. Some of what they wanted to say was probably, well, was obviously um, problematic at the beginning about masks, right? Um, Yeah. Oh yeah, I think. I mean, I think so. The the you know the CDC is a political entity, and you know they were they've been pretty clear since that they were worried about people snapping up masks away from right, right. You know, and and you know, even though I mean, it certainly couldn't have hurt. I mean, until we knew more, why not? Had we the supply? Um, but but yeah, I mean. I mean, as far as the work goes here, the, you know, there's, there's the, the, you know, the more communitarian side and, and on that end, the, you know, the impact on, on, uh, faculty with, um, young children, I think, especially, uh, women, uh, faculty were, was, was devastating. Um, and, and students across the board were, um, you know, it was just beyond belief. I mean, it just just the sort of the worst student nightmare you've been across in your career. And then that's basically half the class. Um, so that, that's been the weirdest part on the work. And of course, all of that, um, you know, just, uh, you know, I don't know how far from the more egoistic, uh, side it is set back our, our, you know, professional agendas and things like that. But, uh, and I was, um, uh, our our department chair was uh, supposed to uh, be teaching abroad, and and I I was thought it would be easy duty to act as interim chair, and uh, all this went down about what four weeks in Jenna or something like that. Yeah, and the rest rest of that semester was just a blur, um, and um, and the students knew nobody knew what to do, of course. So, um, and I'm not. I think people are starting to feel like they do now, but. Um, I think I think there will probably still be surprises, and uh, what yeah. what post pandemic higher ed in the U.S. looks like, I think, is still kind of a 
bit of an open question. Well, actually, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point because there is a worry, of course, that university administrations are going to use the changes that occurred due to coping with teaching during a pandemic and then bed those changes in. So there's a university in Aotearoa, New Zealand, who I won't name, which brought in a scaling mechanism to deal with how student marks worked during the pandemic, which was at a point where, because of lockdowns, we couldn't teach in person. We, of course, have gone back to teaching in person throughout this year, apart from one or two breaks where we thought there was COVID in the community. And yet this university is continuing to use a scaling mechanism that was designed to cope with a locked down student population that couldn't be in classes. And they're using it throughout this year. And people are going, this now seems to be policy that we're going to be scaling marks all the time. But we brought in the scaling to deal with the fact that there was a crisis and we knew that students weren't coping particularly well. We're actually back to where we were over a year ago, teaching-wise. So why is the scaling still in effect? Because the the cause for why we brought the policy in isn't there anymore. Why is the university continuing down this path? Yeah, it is a problem, or it is potentially a problem. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, the push is going to be to get people back in the classroom and, and uh, you know, sort of reestablish the old, the old normal... I think a lot of students are going to be more interested in remote learning than were pre-pandemic, and and the balance is going to have to shift in that direction. I mean, you know, people discovered that that um, learning remotely solves some daycare problems, and it solves some, um, uh, you know, saved saved me a couple hundred bucks on parking this year, and and things like that. So I I I don't I think reestablishing, you know, post post pandemic campus life will be will be interesting um we were talking about these conferences that you can sort of go to that you know i mean jenna could you have gone to a conference in ireland uh pre-pandemic very easily or no you know know, exactly it's kind of cool in some ways there there's some opportunities for for doing things uh, in a better different way i think Plus, it does mean we can now pivot pivot to a PragerU style way of delivering content online. Well, yeehaw. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, that's you know, I. It's interesting because I don't know. I don't know what the what the data are anecdotally. Just while we're on this subject, you know, I had students who who thrived. Um, Online, and I did remote synchronous teaching because I, that's what I, I still wanted to have um, sort of, you know, co-presence in time. And they were surprised and that they were uh, thriving or at least finding it okay to be uh, on, you know, on Zoom and, and doing, you know, sort of, I also did a fair bit of self-directed sort of asynchronous parts of that because of the way that Zoom creates fatigue. But I also had students that I hadn't expected um, to feel upset and never really adjust to being on Zoom, very good students. And so it wasn't really predictable in the way that I thought. I think it's, you know, it's just like everything else about teaching and learning. It's like, you know, it, it's, it suits some people, it doesn't others. And it, and there are different reasons, right? Economic reasons for needing um, to be, say, on Zoom or asynchronous. But there are some economic, we sort of ultimately economic reasons for appreciating having a time away in the classroom. You can say to your boss, I need to be in class now. And then you're in class. You're not also trying to take care of your kids because you're in the classroom. So you've got some, you know, some Wolfian uh, room of your own. Now, it's not of your own completely because it's a learning space, but as an educator, I want to argue that's a good space for, you know, self-development, et cetera, et cetera, like the mind. All right. I just babbled on there. So I don't know, though, but I think, I think Marty, your points are really good. And I also just want to point out that, that the pandemic really hit. We could see it in higher education classrooms, which you could see it everywhere in the United States. Um, 
the, the, the people who are already struggling, whether it was economically, psychologically, culturally, or more than one of those ways, right, were the first to to really just go all the way into, you know, this is traumatic, I can't cope, what is going on here? And so it, it hit unevenly, and, and partly it's... I. I would love to have simultaneously been teaching in New Zealand and the United States to see how that differed. The level of trauma, the level of fear, uncertainty, and difficulty adjusting. No, and around here too, that all, all this was playing out in you know against the backdrop of Black Lives uh, Matter. You know, right, yeah, Black Lives Matter, and having and to the, respond the, to more shootings, more murders. Yeah, sorry, I didn't interrupt. No, you're right. Uh, the mass mandates and the capital invasions and, uh, you know, at the state level. And I think there's a, Marty, uh, maybe this gets us closer to conspiracy theory in a way. Uh, and M, um, you know, in the United States, there's a real sense, I think, um, that, well, in Idaho, I think there was a real sense of every moment, what's going to happen here? This is, the, people were scared and literally moment to moment, it wasn't clear whether social order and political order would hold. And that was, that I could see it on Facebook. I could see it in the news. I could see it, you know, in people's tones of voice when they said, you know, and they would explain what happens at, you know, when people invaded stores refusing to wear masks and basically en masse invaded local stores in Boise and then refused to leave, forcing store owners to shut those places down on some of the um, most important days of the year for them economically. Does that make sense? The days before, you know, holidays, the last shopping day, the biggest shopping day before holidays. And this was strategically done. And so the feeling that things were in chaos made me think about moral panics and conspiracy, conspiracy theorizing, all that stuff more. And in terms of like, my own approach to conspiracy theory theories and conspiracy theories, I really had a sort of a, well, Emma, you, you know, you, you, your, your recent paper on COVID and its title kind of gets, gets, and the, pro, the sort of premise gets at like, wait a minute, was I wrong about all of this? If I'm a particularist, maybe this is a threat to the social order as such. Maybe conspiracy theorizing as such is a problem as such for the social order, which for a sociologist is a crazy thing to think. And I came down back off of that, but, um, but I, but I've never seen so much concern about like what we might call social order, the idea that things were going to be predictable and relatively safe. Well, yes, I do think that talking about conspiracy theories in the midst of a pandemic where belief in certain conspiracy theories has drastic public health out. Yeah is the kind of thing that particulars do need to think about because we may have been a little blasé with respect to the social cost of conspiracy theorizing in that we've always said, look, because conspiracies occur and we should be vigilant about the existence of conspiracies, we should treat conspiracy theories seriously and investigate them. But there is also the additional worry there that, right, how do we engage in these investigations to ensure that we're also not engaging in damage to the polis at the same time? Because as right. we saw with the COVID-19 pandemic, sometimes just openly discussing the origin and purpose of COVID-19, so talking about those conspiracy theories, might have the danger. And I'm gonna I'm gonna stress might there because mm. It's still an open question as to whether this yeah. does occur, but it might have the danger of introducing people to views that they haven't heard before, which they find intuitively plausible, which then might, once again, I use that word, might have the effect of making them less inclined to wear a mask or less inclined to engage in social distancing or now less inclined to take the vaccine. And I think we can square that circle. I think we can solve what this apparent problem of particularism might be. But it is the kind of thing that, as particularists, I think we need to grapple with, which is it's all fine and good to be talking about conspiracy theories outside of a major disaster. 
But when, when you're in the middle of that disaster, negotiating how we talk about the conspiracy theories and how we advocate for their investigation, I think is slightly more complex than maybe we've ever given it credit for. Yeah, this is a really important uh, point. And I think that um, an interesting, I want to add to that because, so. Well, let me, let me interject because I, th- th- you know, the, uh, of all the sort of, conspiracy theories and i'm not sure this this is probably more of a conspiracy hypothesis i guess but but the idea that um you know the government um forcing people to wear masks was an attempt to muzzle them an attempt to you know limit their freedom of speech and you know it's just talk louder so people can hear you through the mask. Yeah, it's exactly. like they're, they're, you know, do we ha- what what's to investigate here? Well, I mean, and so I have to, I, 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 you know, it's one of those things where you can go, well, okay, that's a that's a theory. Let's investigate, and then you know, a, a, you know, about five seconds later, you go, how is that? How is that possibly an infringement on your First Amendment rights of any kind? I, I don't understand. So. Um, you know, and again, short of, I mean, the hearing impaired, I mean, we, people, you know, things like this, there are reasonable grounds to not want to wear a mask, but, but, but the fact that it's a denial of your first amendment right to free speech seems, um, a bit of a stretch. So here's a, yeah, Marty, I think that's, I think that, uh, the more speech argument is reasonable there, although the question is worth asking, but I also think one of the things, hmm, I, in the first semester of the pandemic, um, I had students who came to class and they were frankly concerned about YouTube videos that they had been sent, that they had watched, um, that ost- and again, this is so, you know, ostensibly that they had watched um, showing New York hospitals with nobody coming in and out, with miles of empty corridors, yada, 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 yada. And those, those of course, you know, and they, they, then saying this might be a conspiracy theory. I think it's just made up stuff. And having to, having to, you know, these students were intelligent. They had been critical. They know, they know how to be critical thinkers. Um, and yet, there's a way in which those kinds of images. I mean, the, part part of the problem here is that those kinds of images are designed. Right, they weren't just. They didn't just happen. They didn't just end up in in students' hands or hands. They were designed um, to create these sorts of problems. And so, I want to go back to M's point. Or at least, I hope I'm going to connect with M's point here. You know, so the sociology of social movements, which also is is uh, a sort of a, it's in between the disciplines of sociology and political science. It's 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 it it. it I think it developed originally in sociology. That's where most of the early work was until at least probably mid-90s and then political science started getting involved as well. It's a really deep literature and it's got some real big divisions and polarizations, which is a good thing in an academic area. Uh, And one of the reasons that I really distrust the psychology of conspiracy theory work because there are almost no conflicts about method, about results, about theoretical frameworks, and that's scary. But back to my main point, um, the sociology of social movements has long tried to identify um, out of the welter of things that happened before, say, an invasion of a Capitol building occurs, what motivates people, what needs to be in place, am I making sense, what resources need to be mobilized, what political structures and opportunities are in place or open or closed for people, and then the techniques that they know or learn or are taught, right? Because these things don't happen, and they're not, like, it's not obvious. What happened at the Capitol, for example, is not obvious to people. It wouldn't be obvious to us what to do, quote-unquote. Does that make sense? Or to anybody. People are taught this stuff. And so my point here is that it's not just a simple learning about an idea like COVID is a, a hoax, or you know uh, the the election has been stolen, right? That make people act in these ways. There's a it's almost like the tip of an iceberg, and there's a huge amount of of ice under the water, and it's historical ice that's built up over time. So now I'm mixing metaphors, but still I'm gonna stick with my weird mixed iceberg metaphor. Um, 
And so the, the conditions that create that all the stuff that enable a particular kind of, say, concern about hoaxes or 5G, right, uh, uh, COVID stuff to happen, that's all laid in place well before the thing happens. And so I don't think there's a one-to-one correspondence between, um, you know, we say these ideas. I could be wrong, though, and I think that this the pandemic has made me worry about this and think about it much more deeply, right? But there's not a one-to-one correspondence between ideology, say, uh, repertoires of, of collective action, like refusal to get a vaccine or the spread of information uh, about a vaccine being um, a, an attempt of the government to spy on you through nanoparticles and the whatever, whatever. You does know, that make my, sense? It does to me. Um, but, you know, the, uh, and the stuff that wasn't... It wasn't conspiracy theory so much, but part of this that has amazed me, and I'm just, you know, picking up on the anti-vax thing, are the number of healthcare workers in this country who say, well, they want to do they want to do some more research, which for anyone who isn't a virologist largely consists of, of googling something, and if it's not <laughs> on the first page, we generally stop. Right. So, so That's this true. is what pe- people people in this country they want to do their own research about everything. And, and it's just, it, it's, and I guess, I guess the, the annoying thing is that, well, given that you're only going to spend about 45 seconds doing said research, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and get on with that? And then we can, you get back to me and we'll have a conversation about. But doesn't that, yeah, doesn't that confirm M's concern precisely that, look, you know, somebody reads the abstract of a particularist argument and then say, I mean, I know particularist arguments have been taken up in precisely these ways by people who believe things that I think are um, not good and not true, more to the point, because good is a separate question. I'm not as interested in that. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, and it's sort of a sort of a tangent, but the, but the problem of expertise that, that I know and you've talked about. Well, yeah, no, that, no, it is. It is a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's different. It's different. Like you, we're so accustomed to going on Yelp or whatever to find out how people rate auto mechanics, <laughs> exactly right. you know, it's like, well, right. let's, let's, you know, it's like who, you know, which virologist has four stars or, or whatever. It's, it's, a. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Does M, that, did, did that M, make any sense at all? It did. Um, in New Zealand, I'm guessing though, the context in which knowledge could be taken to be probably true, at least true for now as best we can do. And, uh, having been vetted, for precisely the collective good or public safety overall, right, was much higher. I mean, it's not to say that we haven't had similar issues. They just don't seem to have been as uh, as persuasive in our polity. So we have a prominent epidemiologist who works at the University of Auckland who advocates for a Swedish-style model with respect oh, to COVID-19. Ah. Uh, and he he continues to maintain that, even though the Swedish model has been shown to be a complete and absolute failure, yeah, and is now yeah. associating with anti-vaccination groups around COVID-19, this group called Voices for Freedom. So we have you know, the educated academics who are doing exactly this kind of thing. We have healthcare workers who are resistant towards taking vaccines. We have purported doctors. I'll use purported there because often when you start looking into their credentials, you find out they're not really doctors at all who are talking about the dangers of vaccination regimes and the like. It's just that these have remained incredibly fringe views in our community. And that's in part because, as I said at the front of the show, we kind of had a world-class response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We had a government that gave briefings every day. We continued to have official information access requests being made about what's going on with the pandemic. So news would come out about failures in the system. The government would need to front on that and discuss it. We had expert science communicators, people like Susie Wiles and the like, who were on a day-by-day basis, engaging in advocacy for explaining 
why the state of the science was this at this particular point in time. We, we had this great example that Susie Wiles, who's a, who is a scientist who works at the University of Auckland, uh, was engaging in a lot of public outreach over COVID-19. At the beginning of the pandemic, she was going, look, masks aren't particularly important. They're not going to do much for preventing the transmission of COVID-19. Six mm. months later, she changed her tune, and she explained why she had changed her tune. She said, look, the science has changed on masking since the first time I talked about it. So I do think when I talked about masking at the beginning of the pandemic, and how masks really weren't going to be useful, based on what we knew at the time, that was good advice. In retrospect, that was terrible advice. But that's because the science has changed, and I've updated my views. And so by having these kind of frank discussions in public, we kind of engendered trust in the polis that, look, they, they seem to know what they're doing, because they're explaining why they're doing it all the time. You know, it's interesting because um, size and um, what we might call sort of um, how how I, I want to say that the size of the New Zealand population, probably education levels and um, homogeneity, even given a, a panoply of kinds of difference within New Zealand uh, might all help also explain that, especially given that you did have some deniers and prominent ones, it sounds like. I mean, it, 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 it's a little bit hard to tell. I mean, I think, I think one thing which kind of did benefit our local response is our relatively small population. I mean, so it turns out land-wise, we're bigger than the UK. So actually land-wise, we're actually fairly large as countries go but population wise we are less than a central su suburb in london so we're bigger than wow. that than the uk but if all the people in london came to live there our our, po our population would just explode dramatically <laughs> so, and so yeah, it is a case that we're a small population where a lot of people know other people most of us have had some interaction with a senior government minister at some point during our lives whether a pm to be stole your shopping cart at a supermarket or you dropped into the pub and the finance minister happened to be there that particular night and so i think there's slightly more trust in our political system just for the sheer fact that it's so small, it actually might be slightly harder to get away with malfeasance, given just the tiny nature of the population and the well-connected nature of the population. So I think and, that does play yes. a role. Oh. Um, I, you know, you, you reminded me that I think that um, the UK in general and England in particular looks a lot more like the US than New Zealand in terms of um, suspicion that COVID is a hoax and all the other kinds of things is uh, related to those conspiracy theories. Mm, can you confirm, deny, yeah. or maybe? Well, I, I was going to interject, and I and I may be overstating this, Em, but um, if I if I remember more or less correctly, after after the Christchurch Church massacre. Um, you know, it was like, okay, we need to, we need to finally rein in these, um, these assault, uh, weapons. And in this country, of course, you know, it would have spawned conspiracy theories and uprisings and, and everything. But if I remember right, a lot of gun owners were like, yeah, I think this is probably a good time to, to rein these in. And, and, um, it was a very different reaction. I think that points to a, a more, um, we're all in this together spirit um, in New Zealand, in which uh, we we don't have that here. Um, uh, yes, is, I mean it uh, is true that when the gun buyback occurred, there was a high level of compliance by gun owners who were going, "Yeah, in retrospect, I probably actually don't need the semi-assault rifle after all." And I mean, there were there were some people who were outliers who were making claims, oh, but uh, you're taking away my guns, but it didn't have any particular resonance, in part because, and I think this is also important to note, most people in this country thought that we had stricter gun control than we actually did. So when it turned out, actually, we had 
slightly laxer gun control than the US in some areas. People were going, oh, I didn't realize we were like that. I thought things were stricter. And actually, given that we all assumed gun laws were tighter and stricter, why don't we just bring in those tighter, stricter gun laws, which will then fit our intuitions? And people are going, yeah, well, actually, that seems like a great idea, and I'll give up my gun. It's pretty nice. Oh, yeah. No, it turned out to be uh, turned out to be a quite pleasant reaction, because after a crisis, we've, we've seen what happens ov- overseas when crises of this particular type occur. So, and I do want to just interject that, that gun ownership and uh, in the United States is inextricably twined with projects of racialization go back to the beginning of the NRA and white supremacy. So um, the, it, it's, it's such a different cultural context and political one. And it's, it's actually, there's a, uh, somebody just wrote who, 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 who likes guns and is a historian in the United States just wrote a pretty nice uh, history of the NRA and guns. Um, and I, I wish I could remember his name. I'll, of course, he'll come to me after, after we end the podcast. You know, there's a lot, and there, you know, there's been stuff done about the, you know, the, the cowboy movie uh, was, uh, you know, in in a lot of ways, uh, you know, advertising for for Winchester rifles and things like that. Uh, you know, uh, pre pre World War II in this country, and and you know, you've, you you know, it's been the it's been the same ever since. Uh, it's a it's a it's a manufacturing lobby. I mean, let's get let's get real. That's where the that's where the uh, the money comes from. Can I try to stumble back towards something that I keep thinking? Well, I'll try it and then we'll edit this part out, right? Um, okay. So I've been thinking I've been thinking for the past day uh, about a conversation that we all had actually about. Uh, at, with some others, some other conspiracy theory theorists, um, about this problem, right? The problem of what, how dangerous are conspiracy theories, right? Um, and that 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 notion of danger, that notion of um, threat to an open society, threat to uh, a democratic polity, uh, threat to a way of life. Um, threat to public health and personal health. Um, those are all claims that have been made about conspiracy theorizing. And, and again, in, in it, with COVID and also given the kinds of, um, in the United States, kinds of po- other political phenomena that have happened over the past year, um, those I, both the literature on conspiracy theories and the the, the concerns about that, or the linking of of, the, of um, arguments about the conspiracy theorist as a kind of person, or with a disordered kind of thinking or reason, um, as something that must be identified. The literature has exploded, and that kind of argument for why we need more more uh, work on conspiracy theorizing is more common. And that frightens me because it does create, and I use this phrase very carefully, a kind of moral panic, right, around conspiracy theorizing, and that's intensifying now. Um, and, and yet I wonder the extent to which in when those kinds of concerns are expressed among conspiracy theory researchers uh, we're not actually looking at that very carefully, and we're, we have a kind of a dumb, dumbed down or oversimplified model of the way that people get ideas and then act collectively. And I'm worried about that because it, it, I don't think it is a one-to-one correspondence. There are other mechanisms probably um, and structural opportunities or lacks of opportunity that can tamp down or make possible um, the acting on certain kinds of ideas. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I mean, this is something which I've been thinking about with respect to the way that we talk about belief in conspiracy theories. I think there's a 
very simplistic model operating in some of the social sciences as to what constitutes belief in a conspiracy theory, which is if you believe a conspiracy theory, you believe a conspiracy theory. Also, I actually think the model is probably slightly more nuanced in that I think some people entertain conspiracy theories. So let's say they have a kind of weak belief in conspiracy theories. They find them vaguely plausible, so they're willing to entertain them as hypotheses. But they're actually not committed to them in that they sincerely believe them to be absolutely true. It's simply something that they they think about. So maybe they entertain thoughts that there's something suspicious about the way that the pharmaceutical industry works. Or maybe there's something suspicious about modern medicine. But they're actually not, they're, they're still the kind of people who, if they fall sick, will go to the doctor. They'll just be a little, they'll just give the doctor a side eye when they go to their consult. And those people are different from the people who aren't just entertaining conspiracy theories. They sincerely believe those conspiracy theories. And I often think we, we don't talk about that distinction, the way that you can entertain a belief without being committed to it, versus people who are committed to those beliefs. And we might, we might be concerned about people who are committed to those beliefs, because maybe that's the kind of thing that then leads to further action. I think it's an important one. I think that Riker uh, and... Yeah, Ticino, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, Chino and Raika, right, and non-doxastic conspiracy theories um, do take that up, and I think that's really good. I, 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 unfortunately, I think they also entrain some really um, pathologizing uh, characterizations of those who quote-unquote support versus believe conspiracy theories, and I think that there's some slippage there, but, um, but I think that you're right. You know, I also, though... As a sociologist, um, you know, different from the people who makes me concerned because I don't think it's, I don't, I, 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 so I'm going to say yes and. I, I, I think you're right. I think that's really important. And figuring that out, figuring out what those sort of different ways of um, believing something, holding something as possible, being critical of something, yeah, there's something really interesting in thinking about the the, the 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 sort of people's relative investment in certain kinds of ideas. Um, but that's actually, and that's important, and it's actually different from what I was trying to gesture at. And I don't think I'm doing it very well, but it's that ideation doesn't in any simple way lead to action. And a lot of the literature, especially the psychology literature, social psychology literature, which narrowly focuses in on certain kinds of beliefs or people, the characteristics of people who believe those things, right, um, has this really oversimplified and impoverished model of how it is that we come to act in the world individually and even more so collectively. It's complicated. And not all of the, not all of the uh, wellsprings for action are in what we believe and how strongly we believe it. Very strong I th belief doesn't necessarily lead to action. Does that make sense? No, I agree. I think there's yeah. something quite interesting you say about the kind of impoverished model we often find in the social sciences with respect to how we're talking about beliefs mm. and things. Can and we I just mean, stop I can kind of see <sighs> the motivation. Yeah. So to move it away from conspiracy theories to another domain that possibly we should be concerned about, which yeah. is scientific views. So you have, there are people out there who have very naive scientific views of the world, what often right. gets labeled as scientistic or mm -hmm. scientism views, mm -hmm. where they believe something is scientific, even though it's not. And this can also lead towards people acting in ways which end up being deleterious because they think they're acting upon a scientific belief, they're actually acting on a rather naive portrayal or something which is actually completely wrong. And yeah. we should be concerned about that particular type of thing. But for some reason, our entire focus is on this really bad class of beliefs called conspiracy theories, and probably not this 
much more common bad class of scientistic or scientism beliefs. Do you have an example of, um, say, bad scientism? Well, I mean, the person who believes that climate change isn't real, not because they believe there's a conspiracy going on by climatologists, but because they, they think the climate can't be changed by human in ends up being a kind of scientific belief. So that's, you, know, you get scientism of that particular type. Hmm. So you know, they'll believe that the, the ecosystem is so robust that anthropocentric activity in no way can change it, which turns out to be scientism because scientists don't believe that. But people go, no, 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 the science is pretty clear on this case. Okay, so no, actually, the science is not clear on this at all. In fact, mm-hmm. the science is actually quite clearly against your view. But mm-hmm. you're trying to make your view seem scientific. And that seems like a bit of a problem. Hmm. Yes, because not, not every climate Oh, yeah. It's been going on a long time, though. I mean, the, well, I was I was just going to point to the, uh, you know, way back in the fifties or whatever. Four four out of five doctors uh, smoke camels. So, I mean, the you know the latching on to uh, the sort of prestige of science. Um, anyway, similar, maybe, maybe not. A lot of cigarette ads of those days are going to be great examples of scientific advertising. Although I think it's it's quite interesting if you look at those ads, they're not necessarily saying that smoking is healthy. They're just pointing out that doctors also smoke, and their preferred brand of their cancer sticks is this particular brand here. It's a masterclass in advertising because people go, well, if a doctor smokes them, they must be healthy. And the advertiser's going, yeah, I I never said that last part. I mean, you might assume that, and we're going to hope you're making that assumption, but can't actually be drawn on that particular point. Well, well these days, though, if, if Anthony Fauci said, I, I smoke camels, people would go, no, that's don't smoke those. Well, I mean, actually, that is a good reason for him to take up smoking. <laughs> good science communication. Yeah, okay, so look, if they're going to do the opposite of everything I do, then I need to start doing things the wrong way and thus inspire people to act against me. Yeah, um... I think one thing we want to do is be really careful about how... So I've noticed sometimes that philosophers like to generalize about social science of conspiracy theory by looking at the social... Yes, by looking at the social psychologists. And they don't stand... This is a synecdochal error that's really important and shouldn't be happening because they don't get to stand for social science or the social science perspective. They're really problematic. Not all of it. Some of it's brilliant. But a lot of it is is um, edit out what I just said about problematic. So I don't want to insult this. Well, no, it's it's neither social nor. I mean, it it, it isn't. It's, psychology isn't a social science. I mean, and uh, most of it, it's behavioral science, and there's there's something quite different about it. And you're you're basically trying to explain social phenomena by making reference to individual attributes. Um, um, and it it uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. I mean, no. I guess in a kind of quali- uh, qualified defense of philosophers here, when we talk about the science social science distinction, we take it that what is actual science is physics, chemistry, and biology, and anything else which goes around measuring things that isn't part of the hard sciences. We'll go. Well, that's just a social science. If you go around measuring things, whether you're a psychologist or a linguist, then you're engaging what we call social science. So it's a a brute divide. It's not actually doing anything particularly interesting other than doing a demarcation between the hard sciences and anything which isn't a hard science but goes around measuring things. I think that's fair, and I think from our side we're going to cut finer distinctions. But I also think that, um, you know, if – a social scientist, for example, were to say, oh, the philosoph- the philosophical perspective on conspiracy theories is a generalist one, right? You'd have some problem with that. And I see some philosophers, not you, doing that. Um, and I get worried about it because uh, just because of, of the kinds of pathologizing discourses that are coming from psychology, not just psychology, right? They come from 
political science, for example, there's some communication scholarship that's buying into that currently, although most of it is not. You know, and in political science, I mean, there there's sort of a psychological wing to it in, in a lot of ways, and there's there are people that do it a little more sociologically, and and um, you know, there's there's of course political philosophy that usually political science departments don't want anything to do with, but but um, but I, I I wasn't objecting to the the natural social science division so much as within you know the when when psychology. Um, psychology, I think, is bigger than the social sciences. I mean, it, it and you know, we're at, at Boise State. They're calling it psychological science to really, you know, make it clear we're talking about, um, you know, gray matter and neurons, and you know, we're not talking about you know hierarchies of need or or the id or anything like that. So the, you know, the uh, psychology here at least is is really been pushed into the you know, it's it's basically biochemistry, um, um, and and the the cultural dimensions are, I don't know, and may, maybe our campus is an outlier, but I think the cultural dimensions tend to be kind of set aside. And I think I think the psychologists looking at conspiracy theories tend to do that a little bit. That that um, you know, the problem is like, what's wrong with these individuals that that lead them to believe this instead of us normal people that that don't. They don't believe in conspiracies except for when they're official ones like, you know, you know, the Downing Street memos or whatever. Now, my my has has just arrived, so I should probably start chowing down to start the day properly with a, the right level of energy to get me through yet another day of quarantine. But before we go, where do you think we should be heading academically? in the study of these things called conspiracy theories. What's next, do you think, on the agenda for conspiracy theory theory? I'll start with you first, Jenna. Well, um, I guess I'd like to uh, sort of aim that back at you. What do you think? No, no, I asked you. Yeah, but then I asked you back. Then then we'll cross over to Marty whilst we, bo- we both think of answers to that question. Marty, you've, held, you've now had enough cogitation time to allow Jenna and I to come up with answers. Well, I think if you kind of look at the landscape, um, I, but you know, part of it is how do we? I, I think I think there's there's starting to be a consensus that that yeah, we we do need to investigate conspiracy theories at least in principle, and and there's been some effort among the uh, particularists to say. You know, it it does make some sense to figure out how do we how do we prioritize um, these investigations, and I I think that that may be maybe some you know important practically and some important bridge building, and um, and I guess I I you know not not being a, a fully fledged philosopher, a, a, a fellow traveler, a tourist, a wannabe, um, but I, I wonder. You know, when I look at a lot of conspiracy theories, I, I think that they have, um, you know, logical flaws that really mean that, you know, the evidential issue is is moot. I mean, you know, you can you can make claims that are so logically flawed, and and some conspiracy theories are, and the, and the problem is not their conspiracy theories; the problem is they're logically flawed, and and there may be some things we can identify that that's kind of say, well. You know, because when we're when we're doing a research project, you know, we want to make sure we have our concepts straight and we're operationalizing soundly. And you know, we're not, you know, and, and for me, I think I think a flaw that a lot of conspiracy theories uh, make is is reification in the very general sense of you know we're we're treating an abstraction as if it had some kind of concrete existence. We're saying the government did something, and and that you know that doesn't really tell us anything meaningful you know the government's covering up the existence of ufos well are we is this the department of transportation that's involved this you know let's be specific um but anyway i think i i don't know that was one thing that, that that's come to mind i know there are ethical arguments you know we don't we can set this one aside because it's it's problematic but but i i don't know that's probably more a job for for you than i but but maybe there are some some things, some some kind of signals of, of flawed um, conceptualization that um, you know we can say, well, you know, 
let's look at this. And it's not a, the problem is not that it's a conspiracy theory. The problem is that it, you know, treats society as the sort of thing with needs and desires and plans and hopes and wishes when in fact it's just, you know, an abstract concept we use for a, you know, I don't know, a group of people with certain culture, certain boundaries, whatever. I mean, there's a number of ways you might do that, but you can't, you can't, hit a society with a stick. I mean, it's not something that's out there, right? And yeah, I, mean, I, believe, I believe that was what Margaret Thatcher said. There's no such thing as society because you can't hit it with a stick. Oh, is that her phrase? Well, I mean, yeah. but there's a truth to that. I mean, it's not It's not to say there's not a, um, a collective good, um, but usually when it's a problem is that, you know, society society's demanding that we get tough on crime. Well, that's that's just you that wants us to get tough on crime. That isn't society demanding this. And and that kind of that I think that's that can be a problem with some conspiracy theories. And you know, the conspiracy, you know, academics are trying to indoctrinate students. You know, it's like, well, you know, all of them. I mean, the engineers, the you know, the the people teaching, you know, marketing, maybe. But I mean, it's you know, it's a it's a it's a silly it's it's silly on other levels. I mean, we could look at the evidence; that'd be fine. But but it, does it make sense to? I don't know. Yeah, it, a bit of a ramble. But but some of the things you've been writing, and I think uh, others have been have been uh, talking about in response that. You know, how do we, there's not enough time in the day to investigate flat earth theories. Um, so how do we, how do we prioritize? And, and perhaps one way is that, you know, there are, there are logical flaws uh, to many theories and conspiracy theories, non-conspiracy theories. And we, we maybe, we maybe should spend some time on, on that a little bit. You know, and maybe maybe this this animal called conspiracy theory shares some common flaws, and I think I think a sort of reification or personification of of um, of groups of people. You know, I mean, if you start a sentence by saying, you know, the Jews are conspiring to X, there's a problem with that because there are no the Jews, right? I mean, are, does this include Mel Brooks? Are we including, you know, how many people are involved here, right? Is are these Hasidic Jews? Are these you know, I think we can do blood quantum there, Marty. Yeah, well, you know what I'm saying, though. It's like and when you say the government, well, right? Let's not restrict that again. Right. I mean, there's there's just a we we when we when we attribute some some uh, outcome to a group that doesn't exist. I think that's maybe where where we might start to go. Let's let's set this one aside and focus on the on the five G issue first okay uh, so my my pitch so as has been fairly obvious in some of the work that i've been doing recently i'm quite interested in how we go around generating communities that investigate these things called conspiracy theories and so i want to spend a bit of time either later this year or the beginning of next year looking at the irish model of their citizens assemblies and the way that they've been negotiating things like abortion, gay marriage, trans rights, in the like, in the Republic of Ireland. Because Ireland is a great example of a country which you would ostensibly would think would have a fairly conservative political culture, given the role of Catholicism in the Republic's history, and views they've had around a whole bunch of things, such as aforementioned abortion, gay rights, trans rights, and the like. And yet the citizens' assembly system seems to have been able to not only negotiate what you might take to be the conservative Catholic character of the Irish Republic, but also make policy recommendations which have completely changed the way the world looks at the Irish political situation, going, actually, Ireland's a much more liberal society than maybe we ever gave it credit for. And in part, that is because their standing assemblies of investigating contentious issues has done a really good job of getting buy-in by everyone in the Republic and then producing quite convincing reports as to, you might think this thing, but actually it's better to go in this direction here. And so I want to look at the way that they've been modelling those inquiries and go, could we have 
standing citizens' assemblies, which are engaging in these investigations of what we might take to be the contentious conspiracy theories we're being confronted by. And is that actually going to work? So can you resolve a conspiracy theory in the same way you can resolve a political issue such as should Group X have rights or not have rights? Or is this a fool's errand that maybe, yes, sure, citizens' assemblies can work on some particular issues, but that doesn't necessarily translate out to sorting out knowledge claims such as whether we think a conspiracy has or has not occurred. So that's something I would like to look at later on this year or the beginning of next. But really what I should be doing is finishing that book. Well, finish the book for sure. Well, yes, there, there is a contract. I should probably, probably do something about that. I thought I'd get a lot more work done in quarantine. It turns out it's very hard to inspire yourself to get work done when there's nothing else to do during a day. I mean, isn't that been the story of the pandemic, though? It's like there's all this time available, but it just it just doesn't flow the same. So No. Yeah, time. I mean, I've only been in this room. I've said only been in this room for 11 days. It feels like I, it feels like I left Auckland months ago. You're not you're not scratching tallies into the wall yet. Not yet, but soon. But my worry is I'm not scratching tellies in, into the wall. But it's going to go, why are there 36 scratch marks? How long have I actually been in here? It's the setting for, for what turns out to be either a great or mediocre episode of a science fiction series, the person who thinks they've been in a room for a certain amount of time. And then when they start investigating their environment, realize that at least somebody's been in this room for a very long time indeed. <laughs> Which all sounds rather ominous. Any final thoughts before we go? I would watch that episode. Well, then maybe I shall use my time and do that. Now, of course, Jinnah and I will be appearing at a conference in Dublin in just a few days' time which is all rather exciting, and I'm sure there'll be, there'll be some action reports about how that conference went down. But otherwise, I will bid you both adieu for your various locations in the continental United States. I hope that the situation in America continues to improve. I certainly can't think it's going to get any worse at this stage, but none of us predicted <laughs> 2019 or 2020, let alone 2021. So maybe I shouldn't have said anything at all. <laughs> maybe not. So yes, until next time, I'm going to say toodly pip. Thanks, Em. Thanks, Em. Well, I suppose that's uh, about what we expected, a very interesting and educational talk uh, from a trio of academics. Um, interesting that sort of the discussions around COVID and and uh, gun reform, the, the talk of sort of the New Zealand character, the the the, the possibly cultural differences that um, affect how we've responded to things, um, reminded me a few weeks ago I went to a comedy show by uh, James Nakise, who's a uh, New Zealand Samoan comedian uh, who's usually based in London but got stuck here thanks to COVID and lockdowns and what have you. And he was talking about how he was um, very impressed by Jacinda Ardern, not because she listened to scientists and took their advice. Um, that, 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 he was saying, is, is basically should have just been basic competence for all world leaders. And it only seems remarkable because so many other leaders didn't do that. Um, but he, he was he was quite impressed with the with I think the communication the st sort of stuff that he was talking about but the way the way she was able to get the country on side by appealing to very um, ingrained um, aspects of the New Zealand culture as he put it he, she tapped into the um, into the spirit of oi you're being a dick stop being a dick which um, uh, resonates basically got got people to. You know, acknowledge. Yeah, this is serious. Time to stop messing around. Let's do what we got to do. He is, in fact, he put it best by saying, and this will only make sense if you grew up in New Zealand, that Jacinda Ardern went <laughs> to the entire country. I could explain the reference, but I won't. Uh, so yeah, there, there, there did seem to be 
uh, um, an aspect of, I don't know, it's not like people talk about conformism with other countries around sort of, you know, they're told what to do and they do it, but it didn't seem to be that so much as just, uh, I don't know, almost more pragmatic. It was once, once we had, it had been communicated and we had accepted the idea that yes, this is a serious thing and this is what we got to do. And, and um, fortunately as things went on, looking at other countries who tried to sort of do half measures and partial lockdowns and, and kept trying to, um, find find ways out of doing this um painful boring difficult thing that nobody wanted to do it did yeah it, i think it became easy for us to say okay yep no we're gonna do it we're gonna do it right it, it will ideally do it once do it right although there have been um a couple of smaller lockdowns after the first one but yeah there, there is um i think you can certainly point to cultural differences but the New Zealand experience um, did seem did seem fairly singular, um, and yes, the the point that he made regarding um, the gun culture, the fact that um, there was very little resistance, you know, there, there obviously, and, and the same with COVID, there were um, sort of small pockets of of vocal resistance, but by and large, people were fine with it, and people were fine with the gun law changes to gun laws because basically we thought that's how the gun laws already were. When they said, okay, we're going to make these sorts of guns illegal, I think most people like thought, you mean they're not? I, we just assumed, but um, there you go. So who knows where we'll be at next week? Uh, will Em still be ensconced in this mysterious hotel room? Who knows where? Wink, wink. Or will, will, will we finally actually be able to converse once more? I should note, and you should note, if you've been uh, listening to this podcast for uh, any any longer length of time, that next week, sorry, when I, when I say next week, I mean uh, tomorrow, as at the time as I'm recording, uh, is Em's birthday. So maybe, maybe, fingers crossed, we'll be able to get in touch for, for some sort of birthday wishes. Maybe, maybe that will tempt Em to come out of hiding from wherever they might be. But until then... It is simply I, Josh Edison, bidding you a fond farewell from the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, and I and maybe someone else will talk to you next week. Goodbye. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Edison and me, Dr. MRX Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember... Soylent Green is Meeple's.